Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. I am the guest on today's podcast. I wanted to update our listeners on a number of items. I haven't done a solo podcast in a long time, and this will probably take a little work to be very focused, so thank you for listening. Um, First, I just want to thank you, our listeners, for making this podcast work. Um, I had no idea the podcast would grow as it's grown. It's a credit to you and our guests. We believe that about 7,000 at a minimum are listening to each episode and some episodes up into the 30 or 20 to 30,000 listeners. So thank you. Um, I'd like to go over about eight items in this podcast. I'd first like to talk about my LGBTQ point of view. Um, Second is the book I'm writing. Third is... Um, the criticism I'm receiving and the support I'm receiving. Number four is just this podcast, how it started and how we handle guests. Number five is family support. Number six is my testimony of the restored church. Number seven is how I'm serving in the church outside of this ministry. And number eight is a little bit about my emotional gas tank. Um, Circling back to number one, my LGBTQ point of view I've shared this in other podcasts, but at times people wonder where I stand with the church, its teachings um, on this issue. So let me be clear. I sustain and support our church. I sustain and support our current doctrine. I'm not asking for it to change. I sustain and support our leaders. I consider myself a committed and faithful Latter-day Saint doing my best. Um... I, people ask me, well, do you believe that same-sex marriages are a sin? And I say, yes. If I were a YSA bishop and had someone in a same-sex relationship, I would encourage them to return to the teachings of our church. Um, Second point I want to make is I very much agree with Elder Ballard's statement at BYU in November of 2017, where he said that we need, basically, we need to listen to and understand what our LGBT members are feeling and experiencing. We must do better than we have in the past until all feel they have a spiritual home. So that is what I'm trying to do is honor President Ballard's charge to the church to do better to help our LGBTQ members um, lift their burdens, see their contributions, and help them feel like they belong. And um, that's kind of an update on my LGBTQ point of view. I also, um, third point about same-sex relationships, I don't invite anybody to go into a same-sex relationship. Um, I invite everybody to stay within the teachings of our church because that's what I believe in and all the good in my life has come from following the teachings of our church. But if someone self-determines that's their path, um, and I will support them. Um, and I will try to see their contributions to society. I like to see the family circle staying close. To me, we teach about strong families, and even if one steps away from the teachings of our church, I think as parents we should all do all we can to make sure there's no empty seats around our table and that we're supporting everybody in their family as they're making their way forward. Um, Second thing I want to update is a book I'm writing. You may be aware of a book I'm writing. Um, just looking for a document here, um, outlining the chapters of the book. So as an overview, this book, um, the working title is called Ministering to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. It's um, being published by um, Cedar Fort. Um, I have 
uh, contract with them. It's due to them in April of 2020 and to be published in the fall of 2020. Um, they have produced a few LGBTQ books. Dennis Schleicher, Becky McIntosh, Mike Ramsey are three that have come out. And this is another one. All three of those books made it into Desert Book, and I hope this book does, and I hope it's helpful for Latter-day Saints. Um, as a So that's the purpose of the book. Uh, well, the timing of the book, I want to go through the chapters of the book just to give you a little bit more um, insight. Um, what I've done to develop content for the book is I've created two Facebook groups, private Facebook groups. One is LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, and another one is parents, LDS parents of LGBTQ children. And I've told both of these groups that this is the purpose of the book, and I would bring, I would answer questions, ask questions into the book, and bring their answers, or ask questions into the Facebook group, and bring their answers into the book. I told the people in the Facebook groups that I wouldn't use their name because I want them to be honest. And if perhaps their answer changes over time, I don't want them to have something printed that they no longer feel comfortable with. Um, I got the parents from a couple Facebook groups that exist of LDS parents of LGBTQ and notified them about the Facebook group, and they joined a self-selection. And I also created the LGBTQ group from Latter-day Saints that I knew were LGBTQ. Now, if you're hearing about these two groups and wish your voice was a part of this, I apologize. I did my best I could to get about 100 to 150. I hope the answers that you're reading in the book would be similar to the answers that you would provide, and you'll be at peace with the content of the book. But now to go over the chapters. Chapter 1 is um, how I became an ally while serving as a YSA bishop. Chapter number 2, which is the longest chapter, is Dispelling Myths. And um, it lists 15 myths that we will sometimes say that I believe are myths. And um, I'll read the myths and maybe just some quick comments. So I'm in section two, chapter two of the book, and I'm going through 15 myths. Uh, myth number one is it's a choice, Me being LGBTQ. Myth number two is it can change. And that's the idea that somehow we can change sexual orientation. Number three is marriage will make you straight. Um, that doesn't mean mixed orientation marriages can't work. It just the myth there is that somehow if you're gay and you get married to, you know, in a straight marriage, that, that will make you straight. I believe that's a myth. Number four is you are LGBTQ because of sexual abuse. Now that's a tender topic, and some people believe that the only way someone became LGBTQ is because they were sexually assaulted. Um, being a victim of sexual abuse is awful. and um, But I'll bring stories into there about why um, LGBTQ people believe this myth and perhaps some of the science and church statements. Most of these myths start with a church statement um, dispelling the myth and then bring in additional content. Number five is you are a pedophile. And that's a pretty triggering myth to LGBTQ people that somehow just because they have same-sex attraction that they're more likely to be a pedophile. And I believe that's a myth, and we'll talk about that. Number six is gay parents will have gay kids, and I believe that's a myth. Um, number seven is you can't identify as LGBTQ and be an active Latter-day Saint. And I also believe that's a myth, and the church is clearly teaching that. 
Number eight is there's more LGBTQ people today because of Satan. And that's the idea that Satan is confusing people into being LGBTQ, and I believe that's a myth. Um, number nine is talking about LGBTQ in school or home will make more people um, become LGBTQ. I think that's a myth. Um, number 10 is um, once someone comes out as LGBTQ, we no longer need to talk about it, and ignoring it is the best way to deal with it. Number 11 is around the Temple Recommend Question 7, um, and it's sort of talking about um, how we manage Temple Recommend Session 7, which is do you support and sustain our leaders and doctrine and navigate um, support of LGBTQ people. So I just want to talk about that. Number 12 is if we have LGBTQ people in our lives not living church teachings, we are condoning their behavior. And I want to talk about how we can do both. We can have LGBTQ people in our life, even if they're not living church ta teachings, and keep them in our circle and support them. One of the parents provided an example of attending the infant baptism in another Christian church of a dear friend or family member's child. Most LDS people, I believe, would, walk, would attend that infant baptism. And we don't worry that we're condoning something. We're just supporting that family. And perhaps that's what we do when we go to a gay wedding or we support our children if they step out of the teachings of our church. We just support them. Uh, we don't invite them. We don't encourage them. We let them make their own way, but support them in their, te in their own choices. Uh, myth number 13, it's parents' fault if they have an LGBTQ child, such as an overindulging mom or a distant dad. That's a myth. That's something I actually heard when I was growing up in the 80s, um, that actually made some logical sense to me because I just couldn't believe anybody would be LGBTQ, but something went um, haywire to cause this to happen. Tom Christofferson's book does a good job of talking about why this is a myth. Now, myth number 14, they are too young to know, meaning they're too young to know they're LGBTQ. And myth number 15 is hearing LGBTQ, just that word, or a gay, and thinking they're sexually active, that orientation and behavior are very different. So that's chapter two, and that's a pretty long chapter with lots of stories. Chapter three is called um, Statements That May Add to the Burdens of LGBTQ Members. Now, I put the word may in because some of these statements LGBTQ people may be fine with and some that may be very triggering for them. So this is just an educational chapter so we can better minister to LGBTQ people by not making statements that add to their burdens. And there's 11 on this list. Number one is the resurrection. If you're LGBTQ, will fix that. It will make you cishet um, or straight or cisgender. Now, some of my gay Latter-day Saints actually want the resurrection to make them straight. They would welcome relief, but there's a big group that don't see their sexual orientation as a mistake, as an error, as something on a awry. And in fact, they see it as part of their beautiful essence, and, and they don't want that to change. Um, now, I'm not communicating new doctrine here. I, I recognize everything I've read from the leaders of our church does say that everybody will be straight in the next life. Um, but some that want to be straight and have done everything they can to be straight look at suicide as their final ace in the hole to be straight. Um, because the resurrection will make them straight. And I think all of us will agree that suicide's a bad option, and we want to do everything we can do to 
decrease the chance that someone will choose to die by suicide. So that's a pretty triggering statement for some LGBTQ members. Um, number two is don't take on a label, meaning don't identify as gay, lesbian, transgender, etc. Number three, but why do they need to come out? I saw a lot of this with Matt Easton at BYU when he came out as a commencement speech. And a lot of people say, well, why? I don't need to come out as straight. Why do they need to come out as gay? And um, if you hold that belief, I understand that, but I encourage you to read this section of the book, because if you listen to LGBTQ people and their parents, it may con that connect some dots for you on why they need to come out. Number four is being LGBTQ is a mistake or being created as LGBTQ is a mistake. And this is the idea that um, Heavenly Father would never allow this to happen and something went awry outside of his control. And I think if we think about that, we recognize our Heavenly Father can't be surprised and he doesn't make mistakes. So I believe everybody's created as they're supposed to be, um, straight people and, and LGBTQ people. And God isn't up there in heaven going, oh no, what went wrong? Some of my children became LGBTQ. Um, that doesn't take agency off the table. Um, it just creates a feeling that everybody's created as they're supposed to be created. No one should look in the mirror and feel shame for how they're created. And then I think we all make better decisions in life if we don't feel like we're a mistake. Number five is being LGBTQ is like pornography, drugs, or alcohol. Listeners, I've heard this a lot. Um, it's really now difficult for me to hear that because I realize how difficult that is for LGBTQ friends. Um, pornography, drugs, and alcohol are things of the world that need to be overcome. You get exposure to them, you try them, and then you can become addicted. Um, being LGBTQ isn't something someone tried and then became. It's who they are. It's not something of the world that needs to be overcome. So comparing someone's sexual orientation, how they're created, to um, behaviors of the world that need to be overcome is really adds burdens to LGBTQ people, as you read in the book. Number six, being LGBTQ is like the fall of Adam or the natural man. Uh, now, I believe in the fall of Adam and the natural man, but to apply it just to LGBTQ people seems unfair. And we'll talk about that in the book and bring stories. I believe that that applies equally to straight and LGBTQ members. But to sort of pin being LGBTQ just on the natural man or the fall adds to the burden and shame of our LGBTQ members. Number seven, life in the church is the same for a single gay man as a single straight woman. Number eight is don't form community. This is the idea that LGBTQ people shouldn't be um, forming community in our church. Right now, we really have nothing for that's an organized um, program within the church or a church school for LGBTQ people. And um, perhaps we'll learn how to do that. We learned how to do that with Genesis. We have a Tongan stake. Um, we just have community at times for Latter-day Saints that need to come together um, and support each other in that aspect of their life that brings community so that they can have other people walking that road that might be unique. So um, I think it's a burden potentially to say don't form community because I think Latter-day Saints that are LGBTQ often do better by connecting with other LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Number nine is um, LGBTQ people can't be good parents. I believe that's um, a burden. That If we said that would be add to the burden and perhaps a myth. 
Um, number 10 is saying the word struggling. Um, we have said struggling with same-sex attraction. And our, that's kind of triggering for most of our LGBTQ members. Um, some of them kind of get, and the comment I have in the book is, you know, it's straight people that are struggling with my um, same-sex attraction or be being gay. And so I think that just makes people feel more broken to say struggling with something they can't control. Um, yeah, their burden is heavier and their road's heavier, but sometimes that word for some is hard. Um, and number 11 under burdens is this idea, don't use, identify with the pride colors, um, the pride flag or rainbow Jesus. And um, the pride flag in the past is, for a lot of Latter-day Saints, is triggering, and it reminds them of events or activities that are outside the teachings of our church. But increasingly, active Latter-day Saints are taking that on as a as part of their identity in a very appropriate way. Um, Elder Oaks in his book, book Pure in Heart from the 19, late 1980s that I read talks about the appropriate pride of self-respect. That's not a pride that's comparison in nature. That's a pride that is talking about doing our best and um, feeling some satisfaction in doing our personal best. And that doesn't have enmity towards God or towards our fellow men, which is the pride that Elder Benson talked about in his talk. So even though it's called the pride flag and um, that word, uh, I want to share in this book um, that perhaps this is an appropriate um, thing to signal to LGBTQ people that we love them. And for LGBTQ to take this flag on or these colors on, not in an activist role, not in a way that's um, inappropriate, but a way of just bringing self-respect to them and to honor their authentic self and to take pride in a positive way in who they are. Um, I think the opposite, in fact, I'm quoting Ben Shalati here in the book, of, of pride is shame. Um, and shame is something that I think is one of greatest, Satan's greatest tools to keep us down and keep us feeling that we're not worthy of God's love and to keep us outside of good decision-making. So, and with all of this content I'm sharing, the goal isn't to come to a uniform belief. The goal is to have an honest conversation. And some people may agree with most of my book on all of it, and some people may not agree with exactly everything that I've written, and that's okay. It's more designed to have a conversation so we can all honor what Elder Ballard said. So moving on to chapter four, chapter four is the role of the atonement of Jesus Christ for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And this isn't sin-related. Sin-related sin part of the atonement applies to everybody equally, but um, part of the atonement is Christ, as discussed in D&C, is that Jesus Christ descended below all things. And for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, that really means something to them because somehow Christ understands the road they're on, the pain they feel, the hurtful comments, the difficult road, and that he's there with them. So the atonement of Jesus Christ has a huge role for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, and I'm grateful for the things that they've shared um, as part of this book. I believe I've got parents also talking about how the atonement of Jesus Christ helps LDS Parents of LGBTQ. Chapter number five are Christ's teachings to minister to our LGBTQ members. And um, Jesus Christ, as you listeners know, um, 
went to groups that were marginalized. He seemed to focus on the most marginalized and wanted to bring them into full moral inclusion. And often it's the people that society said he shouldn't be with. And it was pretty dramatic at times what he did. And it raised a lot of eyebrows in his day, I would think. And you can think about the Canaanite woman. She wasn't even Jewish. And he healed her daughter and allowed her to be with him. Um, Zacchaeus, the tax collector in the tree, he invited him to dinner that night, table fellowship. It's a great sign of acceptance in Christ's day to invite someone to dinner and to their table. Um, There's other examples like the parable of the Good Samaritan and the woman at the well. So this is a chapter, um, what I think is the doctrinal foundation to minister to LGBTQ members. And using the example of Christ and these timeless parables that I believe were written for our day and future days and prior days that give us the foundational principles to minister to those on the margins and to honor the two great commandments, love the Lord with all thy heart and love thy fellow men as thyself. Um, In Moses, we'll talk about how those two commandments are actually reversed. And so I think that's interesting. Um, I like to see them as equal commandments and not one more important than the other. They tie together. Chapter number six is called a chapter ministering to our LGBTQ members. That's also the title, working title of the book. But it's things that we can do in a ward or stake in our families to meet the needs of LGBTQ members. And um, the parents in this chapter speak directly to local leaders, LDS parents. What can... Um, local leaders do to meet the needs of LGBTQ Latter-day Saints in the ward. And a lot of the thinking is that you, as a local leader, need to assume there's closeted LGBTQ people. Um, A lot of local leaders would say, well, this isn't a need to talk about in my ward or state because we don't have any. And the parents would suggest you probably do. They're closeted and they're listening to every word that's being said. And we need to say the kind of words that Um, help our LGBTQ members feel like they're welcome and feel like they will um, open up to a trusted ward leader. So that's a real important chapter. Chapter 7 is a chapter on transgender Latter-day Saints. And before chapter 7, I talk a lot about um, transgender Latter-day Saints, but I felt impressed to do a chapter specifically on this wonderful group of people. Why? Well, often within a marginalized group, they feel marginalized. They feel like a lot of the focus is on our gay members. um, And our bisexual members probably feel that way too, that the focus is there. Um, But our transgender members have a unique road. And our pansexual and our asexual, intersex, and other members also have a unique role that I probably should be doing a chapter for them. Uh, But I felt impressed to do a a chapter so that you can hear stories from parents, LDS parents of transgender members and our transgender members. Number eight is potential roads for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And that's um, for LGB, that's um, a same-sex marriage, a straight marriage, or I'm sorry, a mixed orientation marriage or, or a life of celibacy. And I invite everybody to stay within the teachings of our church. So I encourage Um, celibacy, or if a person feels like a mixed orientation marriage could work. A comment about mixed orientation marriages, um, five or six years ago before I stepped in this space, I thought those all failed. And I was aware of the church teachings that they don't encourage those. But after doing podcasts with those in mixed orientation marriages, I recognize that those are 
valid marriages. They're beautiful love stories. Um, I've seen couples together in mixed orientation marriages that as they both were on the podcast together, um, I just felt a wonderful spirit about the beauty of their marriage. And so I encourage you to listen to those podcasts. If you hope that that's your future, I'd want to give you hope that that can happen. And if you're unmarried, that you can talk to a potential spouse about about going to the space together with Heavenly Father's help. It's unique, um, but it really can work. And I would just encourage you to receive personal revelation regarding your future. Um, celibate is another path. That's a difficult path. Um, and that's basically staying in the doctrine of our church and, and never having a same-sex partner. There's some that are doing that. It's a difficult road. We need to wrap our arms around those members of our church that are doing those, doing that road and recognize how difficult that is and do everything we can to support them. And um, the third thing that I mentioned first was same-sex marriages. I don't invite anybody into a same-sex marriage, but if they self-determine or self, you know, feel that's their road, um, they'll have my support. I'll attend their wedding. I want that marriage to be successful. I want all marriages to be successful. Um, I love the way families um, are learning, like Becky McIntosh's family, to keep the family circled together. I do do some podcasts of people in same-sex marriages where both partners are there. Sometimes they offer the prayer. Um, it's kind of a complicated space for me because I don't want to invite other people down that road, but I want to humanize people that have chosen that and see their contributions to society and not make them the villain. Um, but it's a little unsettling for me sometimes to do those podcasts but I just recognize that they've probably already figured out this is a road that's an option available to them. I don't think um, listening to a podcast it creates a feeling that this is a road that they're considering for the first time. I hope not, but rather how we can come together to keep the family strong and to support each other in their individual decisions. That seems to be very consistent with church teachings. So um, chapter that's chapter 8. Chapter 9 is the future. Um, and this is where I talk about a 20-chapter book, and I believe the church's relationship with its LGBTQ members is like a 20-chapter book. And I don't know what chapter we're in, and I don't imply that future chapters have new doctrine. Um, I leave that up to the leaders that I sustain and support. But sometimes people ask me, what does chapter 20 look like? And I've shared this for a few years. Chapter 20, to me, looks like when an LDS mom finds out her 13-year-old son or daughter is gay, she isn't full of fear. And she just has as much as hope for that child in this life and the next life as her straight child. And I think everybody will agree that a, a mom learning her son or daughter's gay or trans, um, that's pretty scary. And there's a lot of fear. And I just think um, chapter 20 represents when that fear is gone. And I support and sustain our leaders. I don't know what chapter we're in. Um, I just think we have more chapters to write, and I think that's consistent with what Elder Ballard said, is that we knew we need to do better than we have in the past. Sometimes I'll see something that makes me think that a new chapter is kind of being written, and I saw that um, recently when a gay choir in D.C., forget its name, um, sang at the D.C. temple the events leading up to the dedication of the temple. And they invited that choir in, and they sang. And um, and I saw that also happen a year or so ago when our Tabernacle Choir sang with the San Francisco Gay Men's Choir. 
And no one sold out our doctrine to do that. We didn't compromise anything. We just actually honored our doctrine all alike our God, all alike unto God, and we're all the same children of loving heavenly parents. Those are our spiritual brothers and sisters in both of those gay choirs that came sing with us. And so I like that, and I think it creates a feeling of, of acceptance and inclusion without selling anything out. So that's chapter 9, the future, and chapter 10 is supporting those that step away. And um, the reality of life for us that are LDS parents is that some of our children may choose to step away from the church that we love. And what do we do? And chapter 10 talks about that. And it's kind of the idea of not making, making sure there's no empty seats around the table in this life and keeping the family circled together and um, leaving it all at the Savior's feet and just knowing that they're his children too and my job is to love. One of the most consistent personal revelations that LDS parents receive with LGBTQ children, and you read this in the book after prayer and temple and fasting, is love your child. And just leave everything else at my feet. And LDS parents know how to do that. And once they get that revelation, often they're just able to just um, leave everything out the Savior's feet. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is the criticism I receive. Um, I do receive some criticism. Surprise, surprise. I've learned how to kind of navigate that. Um, the first criticism I receive is from some active members of the church that feel like I'm crossing a line by talking um, positively about LGBTQ people. And um, they may misunderstand my intent or feel like I want to change in doctrine or don't support our doctrine. Um, I think some active Latter-day Saints are wired that if they hear anybody talking about LGBTQ, it sort of is an either-or. You either talk about the church in a kind way, you talk about LGBTQ people in a kind way, but you can't do both because you're selling out our doctrine. And and I, you know, recognize I'm getting that criticism. I don't agree with that because I think you can do both. And I've tried to be the very best Latter-day Saint I can be and the very best support of LGBTQ people um, to honor President Ballard's vision and charge and my baptism covenants. The other criticism I get at times is with those that have left the church. And, and they say for me to be an ally— and this is just from some that have left the church. I need to be critical of the church. I need to advocate for a change in doctrine. Um, and unless I'm willing to do that, I'm not really an ally. And if people feel that way, I think it's okay to feel that way. I can't, I think LGBTQ people get to define um, an ally. I don't think an ally gets to define what a good ally is. And so I recognize that I'm not going to meet the ally definition of some LGBTQ people that have stepped away from the church. Um, I do get mostly positive comments from LGBTQ people that, step away, that have stepped away from the church. They aren't asking me to be critical of the church or ask for a change in doctrine. They recognize my bridge-building efforts and try to change hearts and minds at a local level and are grateful. Um, most of my criticism comes um, direct messages at times, and I read every message I get. Um, I try to respond to every message I get. Twitter, Twitter, um, where I'm pretty active, is where I get the most criticism. Some of those I think are parody accounts that take on or troll people. Um, but I'm just trying to do the very best I can to bridge 
be a bridge builder, not polarize social media or polarize our world. But in, in fact, it's kind of one of the coolest things you can do if you can bring together people without selling out your doctrine or compromising and find common ground to bring people together. Uh, at the end of the day, I believe everybody is my spiritual brother or sister, and I see them at that level and want to do things to sustain them. The next thing I want to do is talk about the podcast. One of the questions I get asked is, how did this podcast start? And it started with uh, a conversation I had with my son-in-law, Nico Lazarev, as I've mentioned. Nico was here with me um, to tell the story firsthand. Welcome to the podcast, Nico. Thanks. Thanks, Dick. Happy to be here. Just as a little background on Nico, I'd like to share with you who he is. He's 30 years old. He is married to our oldest daughter, Abby. They have two children and a third child on the way. Nico has a career in commercial real estate, lives in Laguna Niguel, um, is completing a master's program at Georgetown, um, grew up in a part member family, wonderful mom and dad, served a mission in Paris, speaking Mandarin. Um, and we may have Nico on the podcast to tell his uh, wonderful story. But I was, Nico and Abby were um, following my Facebook posts when I started to talk about LGBTQ faith crisis. I was a singles ward bishop at the time and was re just being released in 2016. I was, I'm talking about it more in 2017, and they're on my Facebook feed and realizing that their dad, father in law, is talking about some of these more complicated subjects. So towards the end of 20, um, 17, we're on a family trip together, and I'm just brainstorming with Nico ways to get this message out further. So talk about that conversation, Nico. Yeah, so I think, you, and, and you reminded me, and, and you're absolutely right, is I think at the time we had just moved to Washington, D.C., and, you know, we, we really enjoyed reading the posts because you had a lot, I mean, you had a lot to say, um, and, uh, and, and I was taking the, the Metro, you know, every morning to, to work. And, uh, I remember just thinking, you know, man, I, I, I want to get caught up on this. I want to, you know, I want to really know what's going on and what you're posting. And, uh, and, and I thought of, you know, just maybe floating out to you to start a, a podcast. And, uh, and so I think, yeah, we were on a family vacation and I looked at you and I was just like, Hey, you know, you know, Dick, like, have you, have you thought about starting a podcast? And he looked at me and said, I, I know what they are and I've heard of them before, but but no, no, I haven't really thought about doing a podcast. And I remember we were talking about the difference between like writing and speaking and the reach and all that different stuff. And, and, um, I do have to say that, that initially one thing that we can chuckle about now is that you said that you were going to, you were thinking about just doing a podcast where you would be speaking, where that would be something, Correct. <laughs> where that would be something that, cause I, cause I think at the time you said, I don't know if I could get enough people that would even want to, to speak about this and 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 in i mean two years almost two years time i just find it pretty it's pretty amazing to think about that that was a, a an actual consideration i mean now you have more you know more people than than time to be able to even do this so so it's i remember when nico floated that um i had never listened to a podcast and so I really didn't know much about the space and but i recognize that here's a guy from a younger generation I'm 30 years old, millennial, and engaging in content in a different way than I was used to. And I stood on that idea for a while, and I didn't obviously know how to produce a podcast, how to moderate a podcast, and it was more just me maybe reading my Facebook posts. In fact, I think you suggested 
all you you could on your podcast just read your Facebook posts. Yeah. Yep. Because then you on the Metro could listen to them because it's kind of hard to read them and go back. And and so um, that really happened. And I just followed Nico's suggestion. He is the father of this podcast. <laughs> oh, um, no. And it quickly, oh. as Nico said, turned into having guests on the podcast. I recognized that as an ally and my and what I could do best for LGBTQ and other of these more difficult subjects is to have people walking that space to be able to be our guests. So they are the real heroes of this podcast. That's what made the podcast really work is the guests that come on and you listeners that want to hear those stories so we can all do better. We released our first podcast on February 10th, 2018. So we didn't, you know, that's six, seven weeks later. I found a guy to um, help me with the equipment. I found a guy that could put them up um, where we host them and the feeds out to all the other platforms. It's been with me since that time, Tom Garbett, our producer. And so it's just Nico's in town. I just wanted you listeners to hear Nico and, um, and his suggestion that turned into reality and has blessed so many people's lives. Any other thoughts before we close this segment, Nico? No, I just, uh, I mean, I think it's really just thanking you for everything you've done. I think saying that it's a father I by no means, by no means you, you have, you took what was an idea and frankly, um, you created something that, like you said, has blessed countless people's lives. And I know, um, that, that we just, uh, frankly, as family and are, are really blessed to be able to, um, be a small part of it, but to support you in being able to do this. Um, yeah, we, we're really, really grateful for everything you've done. Well, thank you, Nico, and your dear wife, Abby, and, and so many of our, our millennial members. And um, that's the story of the podcast start. Thank you, Nico, for joining us and giving a little history on the podcast. Regarding the number of episodes we do, we release, as you know, an episode every two to three days. And I don't know if this is ideal. Uh, I would think most of our listeners cannot listen to that many episodes, and I don't want to feel any, any of our listeners to feel pressure to always be caught up. And so maybe you can pick and choose, but I think there is another group of listeners that are listening to pretty much every episode. Our listenership continues to increase. The number of people listening to each podcast continue to increase. So I'm kind of torn there. Um, I don't think I can continue to produce podcasts this frequently. It just takes a lot of time and effort. The type of podcasts I do are two, two kinds. Some reach out to me and would like to be on the podcast and share their story, and I try to do as many of those as I can. Another type of podcast is where I hear a story and I invite that person to be on the podcast. Both of those are great. Um, sometimes people in a same-sex relationship want to be on the podcast, and those are always hard for me because I don't. I want to humanize those stories um, but I'm also supportive of the church. So that's just always, I do some of those podcasts. Um, we'll probably continue to do some of those. Um, but that's the, that's the podcast that are sometimes the hardest for me. Um, just to be honest with our listeners, it doesn't mean I'm not supportive of, uh, people in same sex relationships. Um, they're outside the doctrine of our church and I invite everybody to stay um, I sometimes talk about there's lots of ways to live life off the covenant path, and I recognize in a committed same-sex relationship um, is better than some of the other roads that people take off the covenant path, multiple partners, the club scene, blah, blah, blah. So I just, from a pragmatic standpoint, recognize this is a better path than some paths, 
And I want everybody to be able to make their way forward in a healthy, emotionally healthy way so they can be their very best selves and contribute to society. Um, so that's a little bit about podcasts. Um, next question is, what does my, f I get from listeners or others is, what does my family think about this? Um, good question. Um, my family consists of my dear wife and six kids. Um, three of our kids are married, three are single. Our youngest is serving a mission right now. And I would say my family's support of what I do. All of them at times listen to the podcasts. Um, some are just more engaged in this subject than others. And so I have good family support. My parents in their 80s occasionally listen to a podcast. Um, so I just have um, good family support. Not everybody in my family feels called to step in this space. I have a son who recently got married and his brother-in-law is gay. And so he's more connected with the space. He's a psychology major and has studied this issue. So he's probably a little more connected to the space than some of my other um, children. And that's okay. I'm not trying to draw anybody into the space and we're all serving the way we can. So I do have a supportive family and I'm grateful for them. We do the podcast in a room right off my front entrance that's carpeted. Um, and none of our kids live at home at this point. So um, it's a quiet place to do podcasts. Um, next thing I'd like to talk about is my testimony of the church. And um, I've gone through um, what I would call just um, an intense five, eight years learning everything about our church. Um, this happened when I became a YSA bishop and listened to some of the YSAs tell me stories of things that were difficult for them. And it helped me better understand. I kind of talk about it kind of looking under the hood and and kind of seeing some of the challenges the church has. And I would put those into two buckets, historical things that happened and current things, such as the church's ability to fully minister to LGBTQ members or women and girls able to participate in the same way as boys and men. And at this point, I'm not surprised with anything I hear. I may not know every version of every story, but I, I'm not worried that there's another category of information that's going to rock me. And in some ways, that's great because um, I can have a conversation with anybody and be educated on the issues and be able to talk to them in a thoughtful way. But it's also stretched me, um, but it hasn't um, caused me to lose my testimony in the church even as I looked under the hood and saw some challenges, so to speak, and see current challenges. And so why do I have a testimony of the church? Um, let me communicate that to you as sort of my testimony meeting. Um, but it comes back to the restored doctrine of our church revealed through the prophet Joseph Smith and the meaning and how that doctrine impacts my life for good and how that doctrine is unique from our Christian churches to other Christian churches. For example, this idea that we have a heaven, have heavenly parents, a heavenly father and a heavenly mother um, that are my spiritual parents that know me personally and love me and are kind and caring and want the best for me. And my belief is that nothing I can do can take me outside the circle of their love and that they will always be there for me. And I felt their love and I know they love me. They may not always be happy with me, and they may know that I need to repent and improve, but they always love me. And that is foundational for me as a member of the church. Um, another thing is my testimony of the Book of Mormon. I believe the Book of Mormon is true. 
I believe there's no other explanation for how it could be written except by the prophet Joseph Smith. It's a testimony to me of his prophetic mantle. It's a test, and it helps me come unto Christ. When I read the Book of Mormon, it helps me to come unto Christ, which is the purpose of our restored church, is to help us to come unto Christ. Um, another part of the doctrine I love is the priesthood. I believe I hold the priesthood. Um, I've been able to bless people in ways with the priesthood that I know that I hold the priesthood, and it has blessed my life. And um, another one is um, our doctrine of the eternal plan of salvation or the eternal plan of happiness, and this idea that we have a pre-earth life and a post-earth life. And um, I like the idea of a three-act play and that we are in mortality in a two-act play, and mortality is brutally unfair. Um, but if we go to the 40,000-foot level or the three-act play version, it's fair. And somehow um, all the mortal heartache and and dreams that in some cases may not be fulfilled will be fulfilled in the eternities. Um, I've shared the story before of a priesthood blessing I gave to a YSA. He had served in Afghanistan, and his course of his assignment bombed the Taliban. He served with honor. That's exactly what he was supposed to do. So it wasn't a question of um, his service, but it was a question of his heart. And he knew that women and children died in those bombing runs. And in some ways, they were innocent. And he asked for a blessing. And as I laid my hands on his head, I didn't have any way to reconcile that. And then the words came into the my mind that I blessed him with is, no one's eternal possibilities have changed because of what happened in Afghanistan. And that's true. People's mortal lives changed. Women and children died. And what they would have done in mortality changed. Um, there's no question about that. But their eternal possibilities haven't changed. And that's the 40,000-foot view of the eternal plan of salvation that give context to this mortal life. Um, my son at BYU um, this past semester had a wonderful member of his elders quorum die in a motorcycle accident. His first name is Sam. Sam had everything going for him. I didn't know Sam, um, but I found his Instagram account and just recognized what a great young man um, who died in a motorcycle accident during finals week at BYU. Um, and I thought of his parents and their crushed dreams for Sam's future. Sam is not going to have a wife. He's not going to have co-workers for the rest of his life. He's not going to have children. He's on the other side of the veil. Um, and so certainly his mortal life has changed, and everybody that's close to Sam's mortal life has changed. But Sam's eternal possibilities have not changed. And the parents' hopes for Sam um, from an eternal perspective have not changed. There's grief and there's sadness. Um, but that's one of the core foundational um, parts of my testimony is this beautiful plan of salvation. Um, sometimes we try to make things fair in earth life and we say, well, um, someone was needed on the other side of the veil more or it's all for your good. But I think that's a platitude um, that keeps us from fully um, ministering to somebody and feeling the depth of their pain by saying a simple dis statement to dismiss their pain. And so I think that's part of what we do better to minister. So I have a deep testimony of the church. I wouldn't ever, you know, I don't, I continue to work on my testimony um, through prayer, scripture study. Um, the way I get most of my personal revelation is I start the day with a short kneeling prayer. 
um, read a little bit of the scriptures, and then head out of the house. So I used to run, now I walk about an hour and a half, four miles, or something like that. And I listen to very just music that's in the background, and I talk with Heavenly Father. And it's kind of an ongoing conversation. And most of the personal revelation I receive is during that during that time. Um, and I'm grateful for that communication with my Heavenly Father, Heavenly Parents. Um, and sometimes it comes through a needing prayer, and sometimes it comes through reading the Scriptures. But most of my personal revelation, I sort of feel like I open the conversation with my Heavenly Father with prayer and Scripture study in not a very long time, and I'm kind of out um, in my time of meditation. I want to next talk about church service. I call um, church service two types of church service. One that's the LDS tools church service that shows up on our membership record, and then the other type of church service that doesn't. And with a home-centered, um, church-supported organization, I think there'll be more of that. I think more of us are not going to look on LDS tools and see a calling. Um, I think it takes less to staff award, and so I think that gives us the ability to then proactively serve. Many of you are already doing that, and I think it's part of the beauty of our restored church. So I have my non-LDS tools calling as this podcast and my ministry to those that have a harder road. Um, I'm not trying to develop a following. There's no financial money trail here. Um, as some of you know, I got called in this space Um with an Instagram post by Allison Paul when she talked about the suicide of her gay son, Stockton Powers, um, a young man in Bountiful, Utah, in northern Utah. And I was serving as a YSA bishop connecting this space, and I just felt an impression to step in this space. Um, God kind of said to me, there's a gap between my restored church and its ability to fully minister to its LGBTQ members, and I need you to step in this gap, not as an activist, but just help bring more understanding. And and so that's really everything I've done is based on that personal revelation I felt. I think that was in, that was in 2016, in June, um, a few months before I was released in later 2016. The book I'm writing, all the proceeds will go to the Stockton Powers Memorial Scholarship um, and to continue to bring voice to his name. And so this is just a labor of love. And um, I'm honored to do that. But that's a non-LDS tools. One of the challenges of those callings is sometimes you don't feel the kind of support. Um, you don't have counselors. You don't, people in your circle may not fully understand what you do and be able to support you. And I think we all need support. And that's um, maybe some of you feel that or don't feel that with a, a calling that doesn't have LDS tools on it. Um, not all of you need to serve this way or serve um, in ways that um, I just think that you may find ser serving your food pantry or helping refugees or ministering to immigrants or people that just have harder roads is what you're doing. And it's outside of a church calling. And I think we need to learn to do that more because I think maybe in the past in my life, I kind of waited to serve until I was called to serve. And the church was sort of my avenue to find a way to serve. And I think we can do both. I do have an LDS tools calling. I have a couple of them. I serve as a temple worker in the Salt Lake Temple. Um, on December 27th, I'll be doing my last shift as a Salt Lake City temple worker. I've been there about six years. Um, it's been an honor to serve in the Salt Lake Temple. It's a live temple. I've 
um, learned all the words of the endowment as I presented that endowment. It's a great honor to do that. And there are some wonderful men and women that serve there, and it's been an honor to be there. And I will um, transfer to the Jordan River Temple and be a temple worker in February there, and I'm anxious and look forward to serving in the temple. Serving the temple is really an honor to do ordinances for the living and the dead and to do everything you can just to be kind to patrons as they come in. Um, I also serve as the secretary in our Elders Corps Presidency. Grateful for my Elders Corps President, Steve. Um, he is someone that I really look up to and admire, and um, he wants our ward to be welcoming for everybody. And he recognizes and that's one of his goals, and he is a wonderful Elders Corps Presidency. I'm honored to serve with him um, in my own ward. Back to the criticism I didn't answer, I'm just remembering now, is people ask me, do you get um, people from church headquarters reaching out? And the answer is no. I talk to my stake president and my bishop every now and then, and and they report that no one's reached out. And I think that's probably the best it's going to be. This is not a church, official church thing that I'm doing. Um, but I, and so... I don't think the church is going to reach out and say, you know, bless this. Um, I, but the church isn't reaching out and saying, don't do this to my stake prisoner, to me directly. I've had some informal support in an informal way from some people at church headquarters, but nothing in a formal way. And I'm not looking for that, expecting that. We don't have that occur in other ways that we're serving, so I don't expect it in this way. But um, I think anybody that's aware of my efforts at church headquarters recognize I'm a committed member of the church and just trying to honor Elder Ballard's um, vision for the church. And I think people recognize we need to do better, especially with our LGBTQ members, to help them feel welcome and to see their contributions. Um, the last question I get asked sometimes is, how, how am I doing? And I sometimes with the YSAs would talk about three gas tanks, their emotional gas tank, their spiritual gas tank, then their physical gas tank. And my spiritual gas tank, gas tank is doing good. I have, um, as far as my testimony, my feelings about the church, and um, just in a good spot spiritually. My emotional gas tank is, is struggles to be full. I've seen a therapist two times in my life. I saw a therapist while I was a YSA bishop. Um, she kind of talked, I had compassion fatigue since I spent so much time working with the YSAs, and I probably still have that as I hear so many stories. I'm either on the podcast or people that reach out and just need somebody that can kind of go there with for them. And I'm glad to do that. I don't do that as a bishop or an official church function, just as a rank-and-file member that's willing to listen to somebody, bear their burdens, and sometimes offer a priesthood blessing. Um, so my emotional gas tank is not full. I'm not in a dark place, um, and so I hope to somehow figure out how to fill that up. Um, physically, I am not. My physical health is not what it should be. Um, sometimes I go through cycles of not eating well. I think that's sometimes correlated with just taking on difficult issues. And um, food is my comfort food, and I gained about 40 pounds, 50 pounds since my last marathon and um, can't run right now. I would like to figure out a way to lose that weight and return to my running days because I would feel better. But that's kind of where I am, just to be honest with my listeners, as you are so honest with me. So I pray, hope and pray this is helpful. Just a once in a while update. 
I love you, our listeners. I love all of you that are struggling. If you're LGBTQ, um, I hope 2020 is a better year. God loves you. Please stay close to God. Um, if our church, you feel like your path is, it's hard in the church, I honor those feelings. I invite you to stay. But if you feel like your path is to leave, um, take God with you. Um, read the scriptures, pray. He will continue to guide you. Um, I believe that. Um, if you're in a faith crisis and wondering if you can stay, I hope you can stay. I have a few fallen dominoes um, that have never quite restood, um, but I have some real deep dominoes as I shared earlier. Uh, maybe you can rely on my testimony to stay. I recognize that those, some of those in a faith crisis feel pain from the church, um, from a leader, from a Sunday school lesson, from a statement. Um, I call that church-generated pain, um, and sometimes that's really difficult. I felt some of that in my life. Um, sometimes on Saturday, I feel a little anxious as church is rolling around. Um, I love the sacrament, love the music, but sometimes something has happened in the past at church, and I wonder if that's going to happen again. And I think there's a part of my heart that protects itself and feels some anxiety as church rolls around. I sometimes feel that with general conference. Um, sometimes there's a talk or a, a something shared that's a little triggering to me and reminds me of other things that are difficult. Um, I say that not to be critical of the church, but to honor those of you that feel church-generated pain. I know that world a little bit. Um, the Savior can heal that pain. Um, but I think if I'm a priesthood leader and somebody's opening up to me about church-generated pain, I have now... Um, adopted the attitude that I need to honor that pain. Um, I need to validate that pain. I don't need that person to prove to me that they're hurt or that they feel that way. Just by definition, they've proved it. And I think in the past I would have felt defensive or a need to defend our church, but now I recognize I can do both. I can be a committed member of the church and validate other people's pain. And that doesn't mean I'm selling out my church, or if they've been hurt by a leader, I'm selling out that leader. I'm just honoring their pain, even if I don't feel that pain. And to me, that's a ministering principle to bring hope and healing. And I hope we can do that um, as families and as local leaders um, so that we can help people overcome difficult church experience. I believe in our restored church, but that doesn't mean the institutional side or the human side of our church is perfect. I was not a perfect leader. I'm not perfect now in my in my callings that show up on LDS tools. So I would hope people would give me the grace. But if I've hurt somebody or someone is, tells somebody that I've hurt them, I would hope that priesthood leader would validate the hurt they feel that was caused by me as an imperfect leader and that they can help heal that person. Um, I hope you have a good 2020. Thank you again. Um, Tom Garbett is our podcast producer. Um, I upload these to a Dropbox. He takes them and posts them on SoundCloud, and that feeds out to all the different ways. So thank you for Tom. Um, if you have time, wherever you're listening to the podcast, please re rate the podcast. If you can leave a review, particularly for those of you that are le listening on Apple, leaving a review I think is helpful, just so other people can read those reviews and connect with the podcast. And I'm looking forward to a wonderful 2020. And uh, my heart and prayers are with you, our listeners and, and guests. Thank you for listening 
um, to me, Richard Osler, on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.